Father, you are mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, the creator of the universe. Everything is under your control. You are sovereign. You are amazing. You are beyond our ability to even comprehend. And so we bow to you. We praise you. We live to bring you glory. And we delight in you. And we love you. And now we ask that you would teach us, even warn us, but speak to us this morning through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 25 through 29, page 685 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Hebrews, uh, verse by verse. And we're at this section that I'm entitling the final warning. There were these two elderly guys who were, had long beards and they were standing by the roadside and they, they had these signs and they said, uh, warning, the end is near. And, and this guy, younger guy in his convertibles driving by just you know, driving super fast past him, and he yells at him as he's driving by, you bunch of religious nuts, and then he drives off the cliff. And one guy looks at the other one, and he says, you, you think we should change the sign to bridges out? <laughs> but very seriously. About a week and a half or so ago, 50 people were senselessly slaughtered in New Zealand. And families were hurt forever. How could that happen? How did things like that happen? Some would say that it's because you know, we're all basically nice people, but we just need to, you know, we got some fixes. We can just do some things differently or whatever. But humans have been doing these kinds of things from the very beginning since Cain killed his brother Abel because of envy. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than anything. Incurable. Who? can understand it. The Bible gives us the truth without sugarcoating it. In fact, I want to read from Francis Schaeffer's uh, wonderful book, The God Who Is There. He says, The problem which confronts us as we approach modern man today is not how we are to change Christian teaching in order to make it more palatable, for to do that would mean throwing away any chance of giving the real answer to man in despair. Rather, it is the problem of how to communicate the gospel so that it is understood. Sometimes the Bible appears harsh, but that is because God loves us. He cares, and he cares enough to tell us the truth. 
Let's look at our passage. Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Here is the last of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. As we've been going through this book, we've seen there will be a warning, and then he talks about Jesus and how wonderful he is. Then there's going to be a, then there's another warning, and then he talks about Jesus and how wonderful he is. And then another warning, and there's it goes back and forth, back and forth, five different times with these five warnings. Now we like the parts that talk about Jesus, right? <laughs> But we also need to hear the warnings. We shudder inside when we read this. But within the warning, there is hope. We will see hope even in this warning here. But it's only hope if you know Jesus. So let's walk through this. Verse 25. We start out and we see God is not Silent. Look what he says. He says, see to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. God has spoken. He still speaks. That's what we see in the passage. God is not silent. Another thing from Francis Schaeffer. Uh, here's a little anthropology for you. He says, Christianity's presupposition begins with a God who is there, who is the infinite, personal God, who has made man in his image. He has made man to be a verbalizer in the area of propositions in his horizontal communication to other men. Even secular anthropologists say that somehow or other, they do not know why, man is a verbalizer. You have something different in man. The Bible says, and the Christian position says, I can tell you why. God is a personal, infinite God. There has always been communication before the creation of all else in the Trinity. And God has made man in his own image. And part of making man in his own image is that man is a verbalizer. That stands in the unity of the Christian structure. Now he goes on to say, he says, The personal God has made us to speak to each other in language. So if a personal God has made us to be language communicators, and that is obviously what man is, why then should it be surprising to think of him speaking to Paul in Hebrew on the Damascus Road? Why should it be a surprise? Do we think God does not know Hebrew? Equally, if the personal God is a good God, why should it be surprising in communicating to man in a verbalized, propositional, factual way that he should tell us the true truth? in all areas concerning which he communicates. You see, if God is a good God, it makes sense that he would communicate to us in such a way that we could be certain it was him. And he has done that. God speaks. 
That's what we see in our passage. We see that in the word of God. Now, if God is not silent, this is why the warning is ominous. He says, see to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. If God has spoken and we reject what he says, what hope do we have? So, says God speaks. Well, how has God spoken? Well, we, I've already mentioned this one. He speaks through the Bible. He has spoken very clearly in his word without error, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In fact, Jesus, his view of the Bible was that every word is God's word, according to Matthew 5, verse 18. So God speaks through his word. He has spoken. But he also speaks through nature. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That God has actually spoken. And I like to say this, nature, he speaks through nature with emotion. Because we can sense his presence. And as we are looking at the creation and marvel at it, we can hear his voice in such a way that we even feel his feelings, I think. He's spoken through nature and through personal communication with his kids. He talks to us, if you know Jesus. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. That's it's saying he talks to his kids. And if you're one of his kids, he talks to you. He wants to, if we're listening he talks to his children. When I was preparing this, I was reminded of a time, one of those times where I, I heard the voice of God. He was speaking to me. I was actually preparing a sermon one Sunday morning. This is down in Florida. By the way, let me give you a little background information here, okay? When I was in Florida, I had to take some classes at the University of Central Florida in order to get my teaching certificate, okay? And so I, I, they, every state has its different requirements. And this one, they, I needed to have two political science classes, okay? So I had to take two political science classes and a couple other classes, a couple teaching classes at the University of Central Florida. And so what I did was I took both classes from the same professor, and he was an atheist Marxist. You got the picture? Okay. Now, because I was a, a little older student, we became friends, and, and we talked to each other all the time, and so we became friends, and by the second class, the second class was actually an evening class on Monday nights, uh, once a week for three hours every Monday night. So uh, we'd have that class. And by that time, because we had become friends, almost every week he would ask after he taught something, and by the way, this, this class was philosophy of political science and taught through the lens of uh, the environment. Ser serious. That's, that's, that's how, okay. So, so he... He would, but, but almost every week, he would ask, now, Larry, what's the Christian position on this? 
I got to share the gospel at a secular university almost every single week because he invited me to. It was really awesome. Okay. Well, at any rate, okay. So remember, atheist Marxist, that's the professor's perspective. Well, that Sunday morning, I was preparing my message and I really felt a burden in my heart. I really felt like that God was spoke to me and said, There's something wrong with your professor's son. And so I began to pray. And I began to seek the Lord for him. And then when I was during church, as I was preaching, I got that burden again, and I just stopped, and I shared it with the whole congregation. I said, I've really felt like there's something wrong with my professor's son. Can we pray? And we all stopped, and we prayed together. And by the way, I didn't even know if he had a son. Okay? This is just the impression that I got from God. And so that Monday night, I went to class, and the assistant, was there and he said class has been canceled and I asked him why why are you canceling the class and this is what he said he said this is there's personal reasons so I looked him straight in the eye and I said God told me that there's something wrong with his son why are you canceling this class and his eyes just went like he said uh his wife had a miscarriage, and it was a boy. Well, later on, I was able to have that conversation with my professor, and he knew me, and we were friends, and he knew he could trust me, and I wasn't making this up, and, and I already had this, I'd already had the congregation pray before we ever knew anything about it, and I asked him, how as an atheist can you explain that? And he says, you know, there are serious mysteries in this world. I put a pebble in his shoe that'll drive him crazy until he stops to take it out and receive Christ. Hope to see him someday. But God wants to talk to all of us like that. He talks to his kids. That's what we see. In the scriptures, God is not silent. But what is the consequences for not listening? Now, the ultimate consequence for not listening to his son and not receiving his son as Lord and Savior, the ultimate consequence is what we're seeing here, this tremendous warning. And we need to take that seriously. Uh, uh, we, it says here, uh, for if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth. Even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. You see, uh, they, speaking, remember a few weeks back, we, we looked at this, the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And he says, those that were at Mount Sinai, they refused to listen. And he's saying to them, if they didn't listen and they experienced the tragedies, how much more if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? It says we won't escape. In Albert Moeller's commentary. He says, again, the author's choice of words is significant. Why does he choose to use the word escape? Escape what? God's wrath against those who reject his son. The Bible is straightforward about the certainty of God's holy wrath against sinners. 
those who reject the word God has spoken through Jesus Christ will not escape his wrath. This is an essential part of the gospel, a part Christians should not be embarrassed to proclaim. Our rebellion against God merits wrath. Praise God that he has placed that wrath on his son for all of those who repent and believe. For those who do not reject his word and do not turn away from his warning, if we reject Jesus, we will not escape wrath. But Jesus, that's why he died on the cross. He paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. He experienced the wrath of God so that we won't have to if we place our faith in Christ and in him alone for our salvation. And so we see this warning, this word reject is the same word used in Exodus in the uh, Greek translation of Exodus when Moses, when the people told Moses, you talk to us, we reject or refuse to hear him speak to us personally. Paraiteamai is the Greek word to reject or refuse. So how do we reject or refuse the voice of God? Even as Christians, in some ways we can do that, can't we? Well, look at the ways God has spoken to us. If he's spoken to us through the Bible, we can refuse or reject his voice by not reading it, right? So God calls all of his kids to regularly be reading his word. Ah, We can just not pray as well, right? By the way, even in prayer, if all our prayers are just talking to God and never stopping and listening, we can reject his voice that way as well, can't we? And by the way, God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to ask him for stuff that's perfectly okay, but listen too. Because he does want to talk to his kids if we listen. And how about in nature? I believe that we're supposed to practice his presence everywhere we go. That God is everywhere. And somehow he especially does like to speak in his creation. So as we're walking in nature, listen. Be open. Practice his presence. But the ultimate consequence of refusing his son, that's what the warning is here. God is not silent. Now it goes on in verses 26 and 27. We see that God's voice shakes the earth. It says his voice shook the earth at that time back at Mount Sinai. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This expression yet once more Indicating might remain. So God's voice shakes the earth, we see here in this, and this is speaking of that great and last day. We see this also in Isaiah 13, verse 13. Turn there, Isaiah 13, 13. We see a similar statement where he says, Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its foundations at the wrath of the Lord of armies on the day of his burning anger. Now this is hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 2 when he 
said something similar about the end of time and what's going to take place. Speaking of those who don't listen to his voice, who refuse his voice and refuse his offer for forgiveness and salvation. It says this is, this is their response. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. It says, people will go into caves in the rocks and holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. They're actually going to try and hide from God. That's not wise, since he's everywhere. (laughs) But this is what people do when they resist and reject his voice. Now this, our passage in Hebrews, this is a reference to the end of the world. He's actually quoting Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, which refers to this. Moeller explains, once again, He says, the expression, yet once more, serves as a reminder that God's shaking has happened before and will happen again. It's happened before in the time of judgments in the the past, but it will happen ultimately here. God's judgment is looming. He shook the earth once at Sinai, and he will shake it again in such a way that encompasses all creation. Thus, the author picks up the words of Haggai in order to continue emphasizing the certainty of God's coming wrath and judgment of the world. And only the Trusting in Christ will survive the shaking. This is a solemn warning. We don't have a lot more time. I believe Jesus is coming back soon. I could be wrong, but it sure seems like the signs are pointing to that. So let's rescue as many people as possible before this event takes place. Let's introduce people to the God who speaks and has provided forgiveness, complete and total forgiveness. I was grading a paper the other day, and one of my students simply mentioned Genesis 15, verse 16 in passing, and it reminded me of something I've been thinking of lately. Genesis 15, 16, all it's, it's just talks about how... Uh, God is talking to Abraham and that his descendants, he says, are going to go into slavery for 400 years before they get to come back out and get the land. Okay, so that's the point he's saying. But in verse 16, it specifically says, after 400 years, in the fourth generation, they will return. So I began to think about that. You see, because typically when we think of a generation, usually we think of it as 40 years or even sometimes 20 years, right? But at least in this particular instance of the Bible, a generation is a, how long? A hundred years, right? You can do the math, right? If it's 400 years and it's the fourth generation, that's a hundred years per generation, right? So a hundred years. So I began to think of these passages like in Matthew 24 and other passages. It says that generation, all the signs when that generation sees all these things take place, then they will know that he's coming soon, okay? So in other words, these things are going to take place in a generation. So in a... About a hundred year period, give or take, right? You're not supposed to predict dates or anything like that, but you can know the signs and seasons, all right? So then I began thinking one particular passage that's really just fascinated me lately. Um, read a whole commentary on this one chapter. Uh, I mean, literally, this guy wrote a whole commentary on Ezekiel 37, 
okay? Now, this, that's the passage of the Valley of the Dry Bones. You know that passage, okay? Well, in the Valley of the Dry Bones, actually, it was, uh, I got the commentary. I heard about it when we were in Israel, okay? And so I, I went and bought it uh, and, uh, and read this commentary. Well, this commentary, and, and I believe he's correct, he speaks of how in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, is speaking of how in the end times, Israel is going to, there's going to be a, like a two-phase thing that happens to Israel. First, it becomes a nation, and that's the bones coming together. But then they embrace Jesus Christ, and that's when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, So two-phase, first they become a nation again, then they actually embrace Christ. They be, they're filled with the Spirit. And I tie that in with Zechariah 12.10 and some other verses. Okay, so, But if that's true, if that happens in a generation, right, well, Israel became a nation in 1948, so got about 30 years, give or take, because it doesn't say at the end, right, any time. And that's one way of looking at this, but we might not have much more time. So let's go ahead and seriously seek to reach people for Jesus, all right? Let me give you a date. Not when Jesus is going to come back. Okay. <laughs> Two groups of people. Some, they predict dates, and they're not supposed to. Others, they say you can't know anything. When Jesus gave us all kinds of stuff about it. All right. So anyway, okay, here's the date. April 13th, 10 o'clock in the morning, everybody here, show up right here. Okay? Is that agreed? Unless you're providentially hindered, please come here that day. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take part in what's called Saturate USA. We're going to take these DVDs of the life of Jesus that's in a bunch of different languages as well. But we're going to take these DVDs along with an invitation to our Easter service. And we're going to put them on door knockers throughout St. Cloud. We're passing out thousands of them. Becky, how many do we have? I can't remember. 4,000 of them, okay? So we need everybody, okay? We'll be here two hours, 10 o'clock till noon. We'll be done with it if a bunch of you show up, okay? So put that on your calendar. Mark off everything else. Say, nope, can't do that, and we'll see you here, okay? All right, good, good, all right. Well, at any rate, because God's voice is going to shake the earth and want to reach people beforehand because he's giving this warning not because he's a mean God but because he's a holy God and he wants us to repent and turn to him and receive forgiveness so that we don't have to be shaken because everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken according to this verse and the only ones that can't be shaken are those who are in Christ that's what we see okay so he concludes in verses 28 and 29, God's kingdom won't be shaken. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God's kingdom won't be shaken. Now, there are two kingdoms in conflict with each other. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, and the kingdom of this world. And only one's going to win, and it ain't going to be the world. 
We want to be in this kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what is our response? Well, our passage gives us our response. First, be thankful. He says, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Thankfulness. It's good to be thankful, isn't it? Uh, Let's look at Psalm 100. That's the classic passage on being thankful that we usually read at, uh, on Thanksgiving, Psalm 100. And I want you to try to feel what he's saying here, okay? Because so often we read this thing kind of like intellectually in our heads, and it is not supposed to be read like that. Watch what he says. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. <laughs> that means, whoo! All right? That's what's supposed to be stirring here. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us, and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. We're his kids. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. We are thankful because in this time of shaking, we can hide in the shadow of his wings and we will not be shaken. That's why we can be thankful He will shelter us from any storm. I think of that song, and I'm not a very good singer. You are my hiding place. You always fill my heart with songs of deliverance. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Let the weak say I am strong in the strength of the Lord. The, uh, the, the first service was much better singers than you guys. Just, just saying. Okay, you were, you were supposed to join with me to drown me out. But okay, you got it though. Because we're thankful we can rest in him. You know, Passover, that's the uh, celebration that the Jewish people go through every year to remind them of that deliverance, that exodus from the slavery in Egypt. But the original Passover, they killed the lamb that they would eat for the meal, and they took the blood and put it on the doorpost of their home because God's wrath was about to be poured out on that whole area. And the death angel would go through the whole area and was killing the firstborn of every single home. But when he saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over that home. That home didn't experience the wrath of God simply by the grace of God because they believed. 
They put the blood. They trusted in the blood. And we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed his blood for us. He became our Passover. And as we trust in him, we will not experience any of the wrath of God. We will not be shaken. And that's worth being thankful for. And the second response is worshipful service. He says, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. Now, some versions say worship, and some versions say serve. And it's because this word, latruo, means both. It means worshipful service. It's referring to, in the Old Testament, the priests offering the sacrifices to the Lord. So as we serve the Lord, but in a worshipful way, in his presence, that's our offering of worship to him. By the way, everybody has a part to play in this. Find out what your part is. Get involved in the church and you will, and, and that pleases God here. Uh, acceptable, you are restos. It means pleasing or acceptable worship. So worshipful service that pleases God. But with reverence and awe, it said. Which brings out the fear of God. In F.F. Bruce's commentary, he speaks of this. He says, let us be thankful he says, that the kingdom which we receive is unshakable, and in that spirit of thankfulness, let us offer acceptable worship to God. To the grace of God, the proper response is a grateful heart, and the words and actions that flow from a grateful heart are the sacrifices in which God takes delight. At the same time, such sacrificial worship must be offered with a due sense of the majesty and holiness of the God with whom we have to do. Not only thankfulness, but reverence and awe must mark his people's approach to him. For our God is a consuming fire. He who descended on Mount Sinai in fire and spoke to his people from the midst of that fire still consumes in the white heat of his purity everything that is unworthy of himself. And so we look at this and we think, you know, okay, how do we put this together? Is God Father or is he King? Yes. Our relationship with God is unique. He is king, the creator of the universe. We bow to him. Life is all about him, not us. But he is father. We draw near to him and receive his hugs. It's like Dan and Sandy were blessed with their little baby hope. And I could just see them giving little hope kisses. We receive the kisses of our Father. It's both of those relationships with God. Our relationship with God is unique. There is no one like him. And our God is a consuming fire. That's how the passage finishes. I want to read something. Donald McCullough's The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. He speaks on this verse. He says, Our God is a consuming fire. As children, we were told not to play with matches. And as adults, we treat fire with caution. We must. 
Fire demands respect for its regal estate. It will not be touched. It will be approached with care, and it wields its scepter for ill or for good. With one spark, it can condemn a forest to ashes and a home to memory as ghostly as the smoke rising from the charred remains of the family album. Or with a single flame, it can crown a candle with power to warm a romance and set to dancing a fireplace blaze that defends against the cold. Fire is dangerous, to be sure, but we cannot live without it. Fire destroys, but also sustains life. The blaze of holiness admits no disrespect. Its boundaries cannot be trespassed. But this very distinctness is the fire that thaws our frozen hearts, the fire that draws us into relationship with God and one another, the fire that cleanses even as it purges. You see, our, God, our relationship with God is unique. There are some churches that emphasize the holiness of God, maybe perhaps at times to the neglect of the love of God. And there are other churches that emphasize the love of God and the happiness and joy, but maybe sometimes to the neglect of the holiness and awesomeness of God. And we want to treat God the way he really is and the worship that he calls us to, this incredible, unique relationship. And God has spoken clearly. We dare not neglect his voice, his warning. Jesus is coming back soon, and then it will be too late. He promises a kingdom to all who choose to follow him. So are you in or out of the kingdom? Are you born again or not? What is your response. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we love to just sit in silence before you and tremble because you are awesome. And other times we like to just share our whole lives with you because we know that you care and you listen better than anybody else. We love you. And we want to follow you. And we take this warning seriously. And I pray that you would help us as we walk through this life, as we navigate the difficulties of life, to always focus on you, to hear your voice, and to see amazing things take place because of it. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you yet, they have not responded to your call, I pray, grip their hearts with both fear and love and draw them to yourself, that they might today settle that question. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our great God.